Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we are turning Smarty Pants into a literary variety show uh, with a little bit of everything. And our star lineup features one of man's oldest four-legged companions, the horse, who has accompanied us for thousands of years in battle through agriculture and the abattoir. And then more recently... They also do fencing, they do Pilates, they do singing, and they also do Japanese samurai archery, which is a sort of <laughs> unusual skill set, but it's kind of his version of the academies that existed under, you know, the Sun King. And then we're going to go to mid-century New York, where the city lived in fear of a mad bomber who wrote angry little letters to the newspaper and planted bombs under movie seats and in libraries. At the height of the campaign, it practically brought the city to its knees. People were scared to go into department stores or go into movie theaters. It was almost as if the bombers' paranoia was contagious. And then lastly, we've got a mathematician on board who will be explaining to us exactly how big or how small infinity can be. Our lives are definitely finite. And the world is finite. It has a size. And so you might think, oh, well, there aren't infinitely many things in the world then. So what's the point of thinking about infinity? But if you think about infinitesimally small things, then suddenly there are infinitely many things. But first, we are going to indulge in my favorite childhood endeavor, which is talking about horses. They've carried us across the plains, farmed our fields with us, marched into battle with us, entertained us, fed us clothed us, fixed us, and done so much for us. But the horses tucked away into our history, always present but never quite in the spotlight. We don't give the horse the attention it deserves. And that's not just my six-year-old self speaking. Susanna Forrest's new book, Age of the Horse, puts Equus Caballus squarely in the spotlight. She's joining us from Berlin. Thanks for talking to us about my favorite four-legged animals, Susanna. Thank you for having me on the show. So the very first words of your book are, this is not a history of the horse. Instead, we get this rollicking trail ride from prehistory to the present, which takes 
its direction from the various ways we've related to and used horses over the past thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about how you broke down this thousands-year-old relationship into these different themes? Well, really, the whole book came out of the first book I wrote, which was about women and horses and that history. And I had a very horsey childhood, and then I sort of gave it up at university, and then I went back to it a few years later, which I think is a pretty common pattern. And when I did that, I just discovered so many stories from history and also so many contemporary stories. And they didn't really have a place in the first book. So I wrote the proposal for this book really very quickly because I had so many things that I wanted to find out more about. You mentioned traveling to Mongolia, and you also went to a couple other places Mm -hmm. in the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you picked where to go? Mongolia... Versailles, Virginia. How do you choose these places? Um, Mongolia was, it's because it's such a unique project where they've taken uh, Chevalsky horses or Taki, which are the only wild horse left. They actually went extinct in the wild in the 1960s in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And they were left in um, zoos and parks and reserves around the world. And then in the 1990s, they took them back. And Hustai is the only place, I think, in the world where they're actually on step, which is, you know, where horses are happiest. I went from there to China because I wanted to talk about horses as a status symbol. And and there's just such a unique situation in China where they're trying to import this whole luxury equestrian lifestyle to all the millionaires and billionaires who are, you know, now popping up in China. With Versailles, this uh, French equestrian choreographer, Bartabas, suggested coming to Versailles, where he has this academy of people who are really entirely dedicated to dressage. And they also do fencing, they do Pilates, they do singing, and they also do Japanese samurai archery, (laughs) which is a sort of (laughs) unusual skill set, but it's kind of his version of the academies that existed under, you know, the Sun King. Um, So that was a very special opportunity. And um, with Virginia, the it was there are a lot of places where horses are being used as therapy for veterans. But with Virginia, it was actually the army's own horses. For thousands of years, various armies have used horses for military purposes. And here they are still buying horses, but for this completely new role, um, which I thought said something interesting about us and how we'd change towards horses. Yeah, what I really liked about your book is how it seems like a study in contrasts. Yeah. How we have war horses, and then we have horses used to heal the wounds of war, mm-hmm. or horses being used for something as lowly as a button, mm-hmm. or as elevated as a throne. Mm-hmm. Why'd you do that? I think anyone who writes about horses finds this. is just that they're so versatile, And they've gone into so many different cultures and through so many different periods of time that they're just a mess of contradictions. You know, we, there's this, the famous quote from the French naturalist Buffon, he talks about them as the most noble conquest of man. And that kind of sums it up because we have this huge admiration for them on the one hand. And on the other hand, we've not always been (laughs) that that nice to horses, to be honest. I thought one of the the really cool parts of your book is where you talk about how um, 
I guess threads of the ancient uses of horses are coming back into the modern day or, you know, have been pulled from the Amish, say, who never really stopped using horses in the old way and are now being put forward into this new environmentally friendly, almost like 100% recyclable way. Yeah, no, I mean, I originally wanted to go to to Ethiopia for for that chapter because 60% of horses or something are working horses, largely in the developing world. And then I discovered that in America, there was this whole growing scene of people who weren't Amish or Mennonite, but who were using horses because it was the most, it was, you know, practically zero carbon solution. On the farm that I went to in Massachusetts, you know, the horses provide manure that goes to grow the hay that they then help harvest that is then fed to them so that then they can work on the farm. So you don't have to worry about going out to get petrochemicals. You don't have to worry about changing oil prices. You have this whole sort of perfect sort of internal system. And a lot of people have even sort of done calculations for how many horses you'd need to farm the amount of land currently in use in in America, which is something wonderful, like 23 million horses, which I think is more even than it was at peak horse, which was sometime in 1901. Um, and that movement in itself, it's it's about far more than using horses. I think it's about rejecting a certain kind of economy. It's about saying, well, actually, I don't want to have, you know, a job in a warehouse with robot shelf stackers, or I don't want to be in a call center or something like that. It's, you know, I want to be my own boss and to be as independent as I can be from, you know, this whole system. Plus, at one point, one of the farmers says, you'll never find a baby tractor in the forest, which is pretty cute. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> if you think about all the components that go into a tractor or even a solar tractor, because, you know, they have developed sort of solar powered tractors now. Yeah, it's a lot of rubber, it's silicon, it's metal, it's, you know, all kinds of things and a lot of energy to put it together as well. Where the horse just, you know, eats hay and makes a new horse. So, <laughs> Right. Nature's perfect machine. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that um, the horse is being used in certain parts of the world to reject, you know, a very profit-driven, extractive kind of capitalist economy. But at mm. the same time, in a place like China, it's being used almost to to cement that or to be yeah. a status symbol of the elite. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about uh, particularly polo and dressage in China? Yeah, in China, well the sort of equestrian elite and horse sports is obviously A, has a completely different history in China and B, got completely disrupted by communism. Uh, I was hosted by one sort of multimillionaire who was a genuine polo fan and he'd built this sort of ranch outside Beijing that was, you know, he'd modelled it kind of on an English country house, a sort of more comfortable, smaller scale English country house and the stables were basically attached to the living room, uh, which I think he was pretty genuinely in love with horses. But there are other projects there, one of which um, I'm actually still curious about what happened to it because, you know, it was sold to the public and to potential members as this is your entry to the global elite. You know, join the polo club, play polo, and you will be rubbing shoulders with the richest people in the world and the most noble people in the world and so on. 
It was this absolutely mad development. It had a, I think, a, a five-star hotel with about 10 restaurants in it and um, polo pitches that could have snow blown over them for snow polo and then a whole complex of villas and high-rise luxury apartments and Topping it all off, there was um, a restaurant in the shape of a diamond rotating on top of one of these apartment blocks. And this was all sold around polo. Um, and the thing with that is that there are a lot of horses in China. Most of them are traditional breeds or working horses, and they're mainly in in Mongolia, they're in Tibet, the far northwest among the Uyghurs, so they're not so much in mainstream Chinese culture. And this kind of elite sort of sporting horse is definitely not there. And there isn't really the infrastructure to, to look after them yet. You know, the people who are importing these polo ponies and trying to encourage polo also needed to teach a lot of people to ride well enough to play polo very quickly. So I sort of talked to a few people, like a, a government official in charge of horse sports, and they were a little bit more realistic, I think, about the development of um, things like show jumping and dressage. You know, they knew it would take a while. Uh, they knew young people were increasingly into it, you know, those that could afford to have lessons because they're very expensive. But I think there's also been a few of these extraordinary projects uh, but like this polo club or another one that's meant to be a massive horse racing complex on the mainland which is also complicated again because gambling isn't legal <laughs> on the mainland in China and the amount of money that goes into it is absolutely staggering and it's all sold on this idea that um, you know you are nouveau riche but that's okay because horse sports are going to teach you to fit in with all the sort of the lords and the ladies and um, sort of the old money in Europe or America. So it was really kind of quite interesting that they were trying to bring all this knowledge at once in or sort of relatively simultaneously. And it was all done on this idea that, you know, just association with horse sports would um, make you from what they call, I think, to how, which is a sort of vulgar rich into proper, elegant, stylish, rich person. That's so interesting. It kind of reminds me, too, of people today using horses for agriculture instead of tractors. It's like this really old school subculture mm -hmm. that is being brought up as this new thing again. Yeah, definitely. So what was your most, what was the most unexpected bridal path that you went down in researching this book and in traveling places? Um, there were definitely a few instances where I thought I'd maybe bitten off uh, more than I could chew. Uh, so I went, for example, to Portugal to watch, there's a, a type of bullfighting that's done on horseback, um, which I'd seen, there's a sort of viral video on YouTube, which is very sort of skillfully cut together to rock music and you kind of think wow what incredible horsemanship <laughs> is going on there but actually seeing that in person is not pretty it's pretty unpleasant and sickening and um and the other thing that was unexpected i think is i sort of started digging around in the history of horse meat in america and just kind of kept on digging and that was a sort of endless trove of um extraordinary material it just 
brought in everything from terrorism to the mafia to presidential elections. It just sort of never ended. And I think that was probably the most surprising. How are the mafia tied to horse meat? That seems so strange and unexpected. <laughs> was it black market trade? The um, Because horse meat has always had this kind of dual status as um, a cheap meat and also a, it's it's kind of the the, the odd meat out. It's the thing that Americans ate if they couldn't get beef, you know, during a war in poverty. And this was, I think, in the 1950s, um, a huge ring, I think, in Illinois. They discovered it was very much like the scandal in 2013 in Europe. Um, In this case, the mafia had basically been substituting horse meat for beef. And that had been fed to all the kids in the schools. It had been been sold in shops. It was a sort of massive scale of a problem. And... I found all these strange things like stills from 1950s real crime TV shows of, you know, people murdered in meat lockers with horses hanging over them and things like that. And there were actually, I think, some murders and acid attack, I think, linked to this particular crime ring about horse meat. So one last question for you. Where do you see the horse, I guess, in relation to our future? How do you see the horse fitting into into humanity for the years to come? I think, you know, depending on how apocalyptic you want to get, like with the Edwin Muir poem I quoted, you know, if we do suddenly have some kind of massive lack of fossil fuel crisis, then we will probably be looking to horses and other draft animals sooner rather than later. Speaking of violence and mayhem, and modern-day abattoirs, let's go half a century back in time to a true crime mystery that took place in mid-50s Manhattan. For almost two decades, the Mad Bomber of New York City terrorized residents with anonymous bombs in phone booths, lockers, and even movie theater seats. He hit Grand Central, Penn Station, and Radio City Music Hall, and it took almost two decades to catch him. That manhunt is at the heart of Michael Connell's new book, Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, The Mad Bomber, and The Invention of Criminal Profiling. Michael is joining us from New York, the scene of the crime, so to speak. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about The Mad Bomber? Don't give it away. Don't tell us who he was. But when did he get started and why did it take so long to catch this guy? The Mad Bomber was a man who worked in a Con Edison plant in the 1930s. Con Edison is the utility company here in New York, of course. He was injured in a furnace blast. And as a result of that uh, injury, he contracted tuberculosis. And he never received really adequate compensation from the company for his workplace Injury. So he had a legitimate worker's grievance. But because he was a paranoid schizophrenic, the ordinary worker's grievance uh, inflated in his mind to a grandiose campaign against all of the corporate forces and governmental forces that he believed were conspiring against him. And his way of waging 
what he believed to be a great moral crusade was to plant bombs in public places in New York uh, as a terrorist would. He wasn't – we can't say that he was the first terrorist in New York. But I think we could say that he was the the first person to create a certain atmosphere of terror that would later become an American fixation. So he set off these homemade bombs and at the height of the campaign, it practically brought the city to its knees. People were scared to go into department stores or go into movie theaters. And it had a certain psychological effect on the public. It was almost as if the bombers' paranoia was contagious and people would look at their neighbors or look at people on the subway and they began to feel that they saw the bomber. People saw the worst traits in their co-workers or, or family members. Many of them turned their neighbors or even family members into the police believing that they were the bomber. Wow. And how long did it take the police to put together that all these bombs were coming from one person? Well, they knew they knew that it was one person and they knew that it was most likely a man for a couple of reasons. One is some of the bombs were put into men's rooms in, in um, train stations and bus station. Um, the police really could not catch him. I mean, years went by. The, the bomber uh, became more sophisticated about building the bombs. He was building more powerful bombs. And increasingly, he was uh, placing them with intent to kill. He never did kill anybody. He injured 15 people, some of them gravely injured. Uh, but the police were in an absolute panic to catch him before he killed anybody. And it's worth noting that this all occurred at a time when crime was spiking. You know, all the headlines today are about crime being at all-time record lows. It was the opposite in the 1950s. Crime was at an all-time high. And there's some way in which the bomber became a kind of symbol of the lawlessness in the streets. So what was the turning point in the investigation? When did things really change? Well, I'll answer that question this way. You think of the 1950s as a time when uh, science was changing, rapidly changing the way Americans um, lived and thought about the world around them. Um, Salk invented the polio vaccine and there were great um, – advances in um, aeronautics and um, space technology was on its way. But one area that was not affected by science was police work and crime prevention, particularly in New York, where the police adhered to the old-fashioned way of doing business, which meant roughing up suspects and leaning on informants. NYPD was resistant to any kind of scientific advancements in their work. But eventually in December of 1956, as the city headed into the holiday season with a serial bomber on the loose, in desperation, the police did something that they had never done before. And that is they went to a psychiatrist, uh, a Dr. James Brussel, who worked for the state of New York, he ran the mental asylums in, in New York State. And as a result, he had seen many um, 
aspects of human behavior that psychiatrists don't normally see. He had seen human behavior at its most deviant and violent, and so he had particular insights. And the police showed Dr. Brussel all of the evidence, uh, the, the forensic uh, bomb parts and the very strange letters that the bomber had written to the New York Journal American newspaper. And Dr. Brussel looked at the evidence for a couple of hours and he wrote uh, notes in a notebook. And he stood up in his office and he looked out in the window and he sort of closed his eyes and he conjured an image of the bomber. And um, he turned to the police and he said, the man that you're looking for is a heavy-built, middle-aged man. He's never had a girlfriend. He lives with an older female relative. He has a history of workplace disputes. Um, and when you catch him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted jacket. And the jacket will definitely be buttoned. And about a month later, the police went to a ramshackle house on the side of a hill in Waterbury, Connecticut, and they knocked on the door. And the man who answered the door was, in fact, the bomber. And he, he, fit, he fit that description that Dr. Brussel had given the police pretty much exactly. Though they did catch him in the middle of the night, so he was actually wearing double-breasted pajamas, right? But but seriously, how the heck did Dr. Brussel manage to pull all that together? You mentioned Sherlock Holmes and Freud, but I read a lot of Freud in college, and I guess I missed the criminal profiling chapter. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it was Freudian, a Freudian theory. I mean, Dr. Brussel was, you know, a generation or two younger than than. Uh, than Freud, and he would have, in medical school, he would have been steeped in Freudian theory. A lot of it was based on um, theories uh, uh, pertaining to the Oedipal complex and how that can lead to uh, somebody to become a paranoid schizophrenic. A lot of it was Sherlock Holmes-style deductive reasoning, but very importantly, Another part of it was just intuition. Dr. Brussel believed in the power of intuition. And, and that's really why I mentioned him closing his eyes. He sort of – he believed in kind of going almost into like a little trance and picturing the suspect. And um, it should be said also that Dr. Brussel was a little crazy himself. He was a drug addict. Um, he would shoot himself up with Demerol, you know, in public places practically. And he was um, eccentric to the point of seeming crazy. He compulsively wrote crossword puzzles on sheets of paper that he compulsively created grids on with pencils that he compulsively sharpened and compulsively arranged on his desk. We might think that a serial bomber has no logic, but Dr. Brussel's insight was that offenders of that type do have a logic. We just generally don't understand it. And Dr. Brussel believed himself to be crazy enough to be able to slip into the mind of a serial bomber. Sounds more than a little like Sherlock to me. Do you think that Dr. Brussel or any of the police on this case could have really anticipated where criminal profiling has gone now? 
I mean, it seems like the reverse psychology that Dr. Brussel did is very different from the kind of stop and frisk policing or the random security checks at the airports that we've seen that unduly target minorities. Uh, who took like who took Dr. Brussel's ideas and ran with them? What made criminal profiling become what it is today? Yeah, that's a good question. When Dr. when when Dr. Brussel met with the police, he received in his office down by City Hall uh, a man named Howard Finney, who was one of the few really forward-thinking police officials. He had uh, a couple of graduate degrees. He was the head of the bomb squad in the forensics laboratory. And he went to Dr. Brussel as a kind of Hail Mary pass in desperation, as I said earlier. But he brought with him two bomb squad detectives who absolutely thought that it was a waste of time. And they were not shy about expressing it. They, they were rolling their eyeballs. They were looking at their watches as they sat there. They couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, but, but, of course, Dr. Brussel's profile proved to be um, crucial to catching the serial bomber. Uh, after that occurred, uh, Dr. Brussel went on to work on several more high-profile cases, including the famous Boston Strangler case. And so he developed a kind of um, reputation, even a kind of legend in in police circles. And police departments all across the country would call him when they couldn't solve a crime of this type. Um, and eventually a young FBI agent came to Dr. Brussel and said, I would like to learn how to do what you do, and we will gladly pay your hourly rate. And Dr. Brussel's response was, the FBI can't afford my hourly rate, but I'll do it for free. Um, and so Dr. Brussel shared with this young FBI agent his technique, and the FBI worked on this uh, and developed it. But interestingly, they dispensed with the idea of intuition. And nobody has ever said this to me, but I get the sense that uh, the FBI wanted to turn profiling into a hard science because J. Edgar Hoover was so sensitive about the FBI's PR and reputation. And he didn't want, I think... He didn't want the agency to be associated with anything as flaky or mystical sounding as as uh, intuition. So what do you think in the final analysis the legacy of the Mad Bomber is, both on New York, on this trifecta of policing and psychology and newspapers, and then even on, on copycats? It's a big question, I know, but... Well, you know, one one thing that I learned from working on on this book, one thing that a a contemporary profiler mentioned to me is that the police had not had that much experience with this uh, kind of a serial offender in the 1950s. Of course, there have always been paranoid schizophrenics. You know, um, Jack the Ripper would probably fall into that category. But as the 20th century continued, and now the 21st century, these kinds of crimes 
serial offenders, serial killers, serial rapists, they've become more common. And it's interesting to speculate about why that might be. I'm not qualified to say, but if I had to guess, I would say it has to do with something with the nature of our of our media, the violence on television and movies, the way in which we are alienated and dislocated. Um, and so if there is a legacy here, I think I think it's probably that the territory that Dr. Brussel went into by inventing profiling probably represents a larger and larger aspect of our of our criminal life. And now that we've solved that mystery, kind of, we can move on to something a little bit more challenging. Mathematics. Eugenia Cheng has spent her career as a mathematician fighting the good fight against math's bad reputation. Her last book, How to Bake a Pie, that's pie with an I, combined one cup each of flour and sugar with a spoonful of math to demystify and make delicious a subject that is often dreary. Her new book goes way beyond baking. In fact, it goes beyond the biggest number you can think of because it goes beyond infinity. Eugenia is joining us from Chicago to talk about why she picked the biggest concept of all for her new popular mathematics book. Thanks for chatting with us about math, Eugenia. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I thought we'd start a little bit by talking about why you started writing popular mathematics books. I sympathize with people who don't enjoy math because I think, unfortunately, often people remember math classes from school as not the most interesting thing and possibly actually a form of torture. And since I've been teaching art students at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, I've been talking to them a lot about their past math experiences. And indeed, they remember math as drudgery, as a thing where they were wrong, where they had had to memorize things, where there were all these formulae, nothing made any sense. It was all just about boring right and wrong answers. And that is so different from my experience of math. I feel that math is sadly misunderstood and that many people dislike it for the wrong reasons. And so I want to show everyone why it's fascinating and fun and creative and exciting and also relevant to everyone who would like to be able to think better because it's not just about numbers and equations and getting the right answer and doing pointless word problems like you have 85 wild snakes and 17 of them escape but it's about how to use your brain really well and I think that surely everyone would like to be able to use their brain well and math is for me a central part of how to do that. It's interesting because people think often that art and math are these diametrically opposed forces in the world. Have you encountered any interesting perspectives from art students or found different angles around mathematics in your job at SAIC? Definitely. I've really loved teaching art students. They are wonderfully self-reflective and very serious about thinking and that's what math is about. And we were actually just talking about this yesterday. It was the last class of the semester, so we got a little bit philosophical. And I think that science and art 
are thought of as separate things with a constructed boundary in between them. But there isn't really a boundary there. It's just something that we've made up. And the boundaries between subjects are really things we've made up. And at the Art Institute, we're trying to erase them because everything is really related. And what I decided with my students yesterday is that science is about uncovering truths about the world in a particular framework. As long as you have a rigorous way of approaching it, there's a rigorous framework for how you're approaching knowledge. That's what science really means, knowledge. And I think that art is about looking at the world and interpreting it in some way. And of course, there's an overlap because science is a way of interpreting the world and art is a way of uncovering knowledge. So speaking of boundaries, something that typically doesn't have very many of them is infinity. That's right. (laughs) And it's the subject of your new book, which goes beyond infinity. Uh, It's an expedition to the outer limits of mathematics. So why infinity? Why go from basic math or an intro to math and then go to probably the scariest concept of all? (laughs) Well, it's interesting you should call it scary because small children... I think, don't necessarily find it scary. They find it exciting. And that's one of the big reasons that I thought Infinity is a great subject for a popular math book, because I meet children all the time who are fascinated by the concept of infinity and so excited to think about it and to feel their minds warping in all sorts of directions. And that is the essence of what mathematics is. And somehow between the ages of five and six... And 18 or 19, when students end up in college, that excitement, mystery and the delight in warping your brain around gets squashed into, oh, no, I got the wrong answer. Oh, no, I can't get full marks on this test. Whereas children are so excited by the unknown of that infinity and the weirdness of it. And the great thing is children can ask questions about infinity that are really difficult to answer. And so there's a huge scope for exploring those questions. The thing about infinity is it's easy to get the idea of it and it's easy to feel something about it, but really hard to understand it properly using logic. And that's why it's a great place to explore, to wander around the mathematical universe, and just to peer at the extraordinary mathematical creatures that lurk in this mathematical landscape. So kids ask a lot of questions that are hard to answer, like, are we there yet? (laughs) What are the questions about infinity that they ask that are so tough for mathematicians to puzzle out? Well, the basic one is, is infinity a number? And one of the stories I tell early on in the book is when my nephew, who was four at the time, got into a furious argument with his best friend about whether infinity is a number or not. So I got called in to arbitrate. And the thing is that there isn't a right and wrong answer to this question. Math is not actually all about getting the right answer. It's more about posing interesting questions and then seeing what worlds you can create that will make different answers possible. So in some worlds, infinity is a number. And in some worlds, it's not a number. It really depends, wait for it, on what you mean by number. And so even trying to answer that question gives us extra insight into something that we thought we understood already, which is numbers. One thing, too, that is fascinating is that infinity in a lot of ways, you say, acts just like a number larger than three. And that's pretty much your 
specialty. Three to infinity. Why is three just like infinity in some ways? <laughs> yeah, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Because we know lots of numbers in between three and infinity. But what it means is that I work in a field called higher dimensional category theory. And everyone always asks me, well, what does higher dimensional mean? Higher than what? And one dimension we're quite used to, and two dimensions and three dimensions, and that's the number of dimensions we have in the world. And after that, whether we're thinking about physical dimensions in the world or abstract dimensions in our brain, four dimensions and up become so difficult and convoluted that four, five, six, and everything up to infinity becomes just as easy to understand as infinity. And that's why three kind of ends up being like infinity. And I give some other examples. It's like the fact that that if you're counting things, what's the biggest number of things that you can just look at and see how many there are instantly? Well, after about three or four, it actually becomes a little difficult unless they're lined up in a neat grid. And I give the example of a friend of mine who was taking stock of how much homemade marmalade she had left from different years. And so she said something like she had one jar left from 2013, three jars left from 2014, and lots from 2015. And so for her, more than three just counted as lots. So there's a kind of boundary about how big a number our brains can handle in different situations. And in that particular situation, bigger than three was kind of like infinity. What's the difference between thinking about infinity as like a very big number, but also as less than one, say? Well, the two things are intimately related, but the fascinating thing, at least for me and mathematicians, about infinitesimally small things is that it's a way you can actually fit infinitely many things into our world and our lives because our lives are definitely finite and the world is finite. The earth is finite. It has a size. And so you might think, oh, well, there aren't infinitely many things in the world then. So what's the point of thinking about infinity? But if you think about infinitesimally small things, then suddenly there are infinitely many things. And it's a bit of a mind boggle. But if you think about how you ever get from A to B. Like, how do I get to the fridge in the morning? And I get to the fridge every morning successfully. But an old paradox called Zeno's paradox says, well, how do you get there? First, you have to cover half the distance, and then you have to cover half the remaining distance, and then you have to cover half the remaining distance, and then half the remaining distance, and so on and so on. And you'll keep covering half the remaining distance. So surely you'll never get there because there'll always be half the remaining distance left. And what that's saying is that somehow every time you go to the fridge, you cover an infinite number of distances. It's just that they're infinitesimally small. You have this interesting chapter in the book uh, that's tantalizingly titled When Infinity Nearly Caused Mathematics to Fall Apart, oh, yeah. and maybe also your brain. <laughs> when did that happen and what's going on? That was when mathematicians were thinking really hard about the issue of infinitesimally small things and what numbers really are. And one of the fascinating human aspects of this story is it happened when a couple of great mathematicians were trying to figure out how to teach a basic math class to undergraduates. And one of the reasons I love teaching is because it does indeed force me to think much harder about 
concepts in order to explain them, because in order to explain it to someone who doesn't understand it, you have to understand it really, really well. And they realized that actually nobody understood numbers properly. And this is a kind of awful awful mind-blowing moment where you think oh no the ground has been swept out from underneath my feet what are numbers and they realized that the whole foundations of mathematics were very very shaky so just imagine that you're merrily standing at the top of a tall building looking at the view and then someone runs in and goes oh no there's no foundations in this building then you probably get a bit nervous about whether the building's actually going to fall over or not and so they had to sit down and actually figure out how to deal with infinitesimally small things and those conundrums, the irrational numbers, the decimal numbers that somehow go on forever without repeating themselves. But if they go on forever without repeating themselves, how do we know what they are? That's the conundrum. Obviously, it took mathematicians a very long time to figure that out and to figure out what infinity is. But I thought maybe you could help us understand what it is in a couple minutes, maybe. <laughs> Can you walk us through a common problem that mathematicians use to conceptualize what this really weird, interesting concept is? Yeah. One way I like to think of it is how children count using their fingers, which we think of as a basic childish thing that we shouldn't do anymore. But it's actually very profound. Because if you try explaining to a child what the number 10 is, you'll probably start referencing the number of fingers that they have and say, this is 10. And then you look at one hand and you look at the fingers on that hand and you say, this is five. So in order to pin down what those numbers are, we think about fingers and hands and we pin it very closely to some objects that we're familiar with. And so mathematicians figured out that they could do that for infinity as well. But instead of fingers and hands, because we don't have an infinite number of fingers, they pinned it to numbers because we do have an infinite number of numbers. And so eventually they said, well, why don't we say that infinity is the number of numbers that there are? And then you go, oh, wait a minute, because there are different types of number. And so the first infinity is the number of whole numbers there are. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on, going on forever. Now, you can't write down what all those numbers are, but you can imagine a kind of big bag containing all of those numbers. And then you can say that's what infinity is. And the reason that we pin it down like that is because actually, if you include the irrational numbers, that's the decimal numbers that go on forever without repeating themselves, that bag of numbers will be actually definitely bigger. And that's one of the weirdest conundrums about infinity, that there are different sizes of infinity, and there are bigger and bigger and bigger ones. You can learn how to get Beyond Infinity or How to Bake a Pie in either of Eugenia's books. No baking or prior knowledge of math required. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. I hope you've enjoyed our little variety show and that you learned something, especially what my younger self always said, which is horses are really freaking cool. <laughs> the theme music for our show was composed by Nathan Perlman. 
Additional music used in this episode was composed by Pietnaska and Byzance Nord, in addition to a live performance by the U.S. Army Blues Band. The show is produced by me, Stephanie Bastek. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.